You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Joel Kotkin. Well, this conversation comes from Chapman University uh, in Los Angeles, and it's with Joel Kotkin, who I've spoken to before, but has been really piling up some fantastic articles, which I think tell us some really important things about what's happening to our society and why we need to be more alert and frankly, more engaged. Now he's been described by the New York Times as America's Uber geographer. Uh, Joel is an internationally recognized authority on global economic, political and social trends. Uh, He's the presidential fellow in urban futures at this university, Chapman, and executive director of the Urban Reform Institute as well as being the author of seven previously published books. His latest book is The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. Giles a contributor to Forbes.com, to the City Journal, The Daily Beast, Quillette, proudly edited by an Australian, American Affairs, Real Clear Politics and Unheard. Good international flavour there. Joel, uh, just, just first up, the thing that strikes me about you, you're not coming from a political or a philosophical extreme. You, I think you're, it would be fair to say, essentially, you're a pragmatic centralist. Yes. And yet you're seeing really war, troubling developments that we need to be more alert to. Well, I, I tend to think of myself as something of a Fabian in the sense that not necessarily like Beatrice Webb, but, but a, a, a person who says, let's see what works. And if 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 the if the social solution works, I'm I'm okay with it. If the free market solution works, I'm okay with it. Let's just find out what works. What I find astounding is that you have people who will defend policies as this is social justice. I said, but wait, California is the epitome of social justice. We have the highest poverty rate in the United States. We have the highest level of illiteracy in the United States. How is that progressive? But what we have is almost, a, it's almost like a postmodernist world where what you say, what your intentions are, is all that matters, as opposed to what actually happens. Now, I happen to come from a background where, you know, my, my mother was a nurse, my father was a doctor and taught in medical school. I always thought, well, you know, I want to know what the results are. If this treatment has bad effects, I don't want to do it anymore. But, but it's not what your intention is, it's what the results are. And we have completely lost that aspect. And by the way, it's not just the people on the left. One of the reasons the conservatives do so badly is that many of them are into this sort of libertarian ideology. You know, they don't care what's, what the effect is on other people. They don't, they, one of my biggest critiques on libertarians are they want to have policies which will, in many cases, mean that people can't own homes because capital goes in and buys all the single-family homes and either makes them denser or rents them out. I said, if you don't have a population of small homeowners and small business people, you're going to end up with some form of socialism in, in the long run. Because why should a young person who has never going to buy a house, never going to make much money, never going to get married, never going to have kids, why should that person do anything but vote for Bernie Sanders? Bernie's going to give you rent control. He's going to subsidize your education. Um, why, why would you vote for a conservative who's just going to keep you poor? Yeah. Well, uh, you wrote an article, Welcome to the End of Democracy, back in January. And I commend it to people. I really do. You can Google it. Joel Kotkin, Welcome to the End of Democracy. A rising tide of money and administrative power defines the rising autocracy. So can we give us can you give us a bit of a recap of your concept of neo-feudalism? Okay. Firstly, what is feudalism? So we we bandy so many terms around right. now. You're teaching a lot of young people. Most of them probably never heard. You you have that, you've got right. I've I've been in front of a class and there'd be 30 people and maybe two. Yeah. It's not their, it's not the kid's fault. No, no. It's what the, you know, they, they, they come out of high school with so little knowledge. I mean, I've had students say to me, well, you know, during World War II, didn't we, didn't we, uh, you know, fight the Chinese? I said, no, we fought the Japanese, actually. You know, I mean, it, and, and again, I think they're, 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 but 
Well, here's where I see the parallels with feudalism. And obviously, you know, the, the, you know there's nobody going around with chain mail and, yeah. you know, uh, on, on horses. One, you have the, the concentration of wealth and power. That was one of the essences of the feudal era, yeah. that very few people controlled pretty much everything. No middle class. Very small, struggling middle class with no rights, particularly. And then a few peasants. Right. Well, there were a lot of peasants and they... Yeah. You know, and they had also they had even yeah. fewer rights. You also have the sort of religious fundamentalism. Now, the religious fundamentalism of today is not Christianity, although there are some who have that. It, the fundamentalism is more environmental, gender, race. Those have become the new religions, and and there's no room for dissent. You know, the you know to have a a a good discussion on what we should do on climate change is as unlikely as expecting a bunch of bishops in 900 to have a discussion about the nature of, of, of Christ. I mean, that's, it's that we, you know, so there's sort of this inflexibility. Then this is interesting. Demographically, um, particularly Western societies are, all have very low birth rates and are, in many cases are headed towards a diminished population. That's also the Middle Ages. We went through about a thousand years where the world population didn't even grow. Uh, we might come to energy in a moment because, of course, yes. energy's been a big part of what's let it grow. Right. But can we unpack? This is what really jumped out at me. So, the, some of the things you've been referring to this, this concentration of power and wealth at a time when most Western economies, productivity stalled. Real wages are, have been flatlining or even falling. Yeah, certainly since the inflation, for sure. Squeezing out those middle classes and the working classes. But at the top, so just some of your numbers are, you know, I mean, I think here we go. Five years ago, you write around 400 billionaires owned as much as half of the world's assets. Half, five years ago. Today, only 100 billionaires own that share. And some estimates are that it's even less than 100. And there's a surprising parallel. China's much the same. Yes. Or more so. Oh, yeah. China has a, China's now more unequal than the United States. In a communist country where yeah. everybody's equal. Right. And nobody has private property. Well, of course, that's not the case. <laughs> um, it, the difference in China is your private property uh, can be taken from you at any moment. And, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll work on it, too. So this astonishing wealth, hardly good for social harmony in a, in a free country like America, uh, in my country like Australia. Uh, you know, when particularly the policies, Joel, we've been pursuing since the GFC, then through COVID, let's not go into the rights and wrongs on now with climate, all of them, in my judgment, create more and more serious problems for younger people and poorer people. Yes, definitely. If you take the GFC and COVID, it's very easy to see. We were pursuing inflation, inflationary targets that were designed. There was a hope for inflation. We couldn't get it. Free money everywhere, cheap money everywhere. It made the wealthy wealthier, the poor and the young couldn't get a, a start. Uh, COVID, you know, we, we, everybody's documented how we've built up debts that young people are going to inherit. And, and of course, the terrible effects on education. Climate change. The policies that these squillionaires out of the tech giants and uh, those sorts of backgrounds, that the policies that they are leaning on governments to provide. In fact, you would argue that government and, and, and those squillionaires are becoming inseparable. That that's well, that's the problem. That's clearly what's happened. But they count against the middle classes, against young people, against the less well-off. Right, but the problem is that they also control much of the media. Yeah. Um, and now you have, I mean, and it's come out quite re uh, well recently, that companies like Facebook and Twitter, you know, are in you know, direct con uh, contact with the CDC or the EPA, you know, the, the environmental agency or, the, or the, uh, um, the people in charge with dealing with COVID. And they are literally censoring those things that the government officials don't think is are, are good. I mean, it, it's <coughs> there's. I mean, and, and of course, one of the more outrageous ones was obviously the Hunter Biden thing, which which Zuckerberg recently admitted. He said we, uh, you know, 
you know, the FBI agents told us that it was that it was a uh, it was Russian dis, you know, misinformation. No, it turned out to be completely accurate. But so I think that the the problem is that 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 what you've got is a confluence of interest. Now, by the way, the clerisy and the oligarchs will have their fights. That 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 will happen. Just like during the Middle Ages, there were many conflicts between um, the bish even the bishops and the kings. That's one of the constant tensions in medieval history. Well, we, we'll see that eventually. Um, right now, the, the, those two classes have to work together because they, they're united in their opposition to, you know, um, to the Trump people and to the Republicans in general and, and against a lot of the middle class. But, but, the, but the, you know, it's very, very difficult to see how we're going to get out of this particular pattern because I think that, that you know, when you look at the control of media, the universities, the cultural um, uh, institutions, it's pretty one-sided. Um, and um, I'm not sure if it's the same in Australia, but I wouldn't be surprised. Trending in the same line, very much so. Interestingly, we have more kids in the private sector, non-state educative sector. 90% of American school children go to state schools, as I understand it. But that's, that's also changing. Um, a lot of a lot of growth in charter schools, a lot of growth in in private schools, a lot of growth in homeschooling. Um, what does that say? It, well, well, uh, what the polls will tell you if you look at Gallup, the belief in the institutions is at one of the lowest levels in the history of this country. Um, yeah. you know, certainly since Gallup has been doing polls. They don't, they don't trust the universities, they don't trust the media, they don't trust the presidency, they don't trust the Congress, and they don't trust big business. Um, I mean, that's all. And, and now they're increasingly skeptical of education. Um, this whole business where we're trying to create um, sort of standards in education that, are, yeah. that, that have to follow the party line, if you yeah. will, that's very, very painful. I mean, I, I'm very proud that uh, Chapman is one of the schools that I, I think has, to a large extent, stood up against that. But, you know, it's a terrible tide. And, and you know, when the older, the older teachers are gone and the younger ones who've been brought up in the system inherit, it will be a little bit difficult. Yeah, the stats on, on the move in academia amongst professors, teachers, academic staff from roughly half and half, only 30 years ago, of uh, either side of the, the sort of centrist line politically, to where it's overwhelmingly one side. And it's a very different one side. You know, I mean, I, I would say a lot, of, a lot of things I would say I'm left, I was certainly brought up left of center. This is the value of your perspective. You're not coming from either of those extremes. Right, and, and what, what, I, what I see is that many of my friends who are liberals and, and Democrats but are horrified by what's going on. They're horrified by, you know, policies that are clearly hurting middle and working class people. The sort of um, the demand of orthodoxy. I was always, I always thought, you know, it's a good thing to have a debate. It's a good thing to to disagree. Once the the term the science is settled, that is one of the more dangerous phrases. You know, science is settled is sort of like God has spoken. And Except the science is never settled. Of course, it shouldn't be settled. I, I mean, I, I remember my father, um, who, you know, who was, you know, quite a, a you know, person studying in the sciences and medical sciences, and he, he, I, he once said, "You know, who killed the most people in the world? Doctors," because he said, "What I learned as, a, as a medical student in Boston in the 1930s, that stuff killed people. We didn't know." We were just doing things that we didn't know would have that effect. So you change over time as, you know, and, and we don't, we look at things that aren't working, like a perfect case that's very current, and I think will be current in Australia. You cut out all fossil fuels and you, and you and get rid of nuclear power. Then you decide that you're going to have everybody drive an EV. What do you think is going to happen? I had a wonderful discussion with a young uh, guy who was a PhD engineering student at Stanford. He called me. He was asking me about EVs, and then he and then he said to me, "I, I said, well, uh, he said, well, what do you think about the energy side of it?" And he said, "I'm told not to ask that question." Really? Yeah. We'll come back to 
EVs because I think it's another area where you can feel, you've just alluded to it, you can feel where the debate's going, it'll be all left brain thinking, it'll be all emotively driven, you won't be allowed to question it. We'll come back to that just for a moment. There's two other aspects of what you wrote in this brilliant paper that I'm suggesting to everybody that if they haven't read it, get onto it. Um, one is that young people know how bad things are getting. And, and their parents know too. Yeah, they do. Uh, and I, it was very interesting for me. I was talking to a, a scientist I respect in Australia recently, and he said, oh, it's because, yeah, it's of course they're depressed. They don't think Australia's doing anything about climate change. So I went and talked to a demographer who, our best, in my judgment, in Australia, what was worrying young people. It's a multiplicity of things. It's not just climate change. It's partly that we snuff all the enthusiasm for life out and we tell them it's if this doesn't get you, that's going to get you. You've got no hope. Climate change is going to destroy you. Instead of saying life's a challenge, you're going to tackle it. But there's two things that, uh, that, uh, that I just want to explore very briefly. One is you make the point that many young people feel they'll never own their own home unless they inherit one. Right. That's, what, that's what, at least in this country. And um, uh, Piketty and the, uh, Thomas, you know, the Piketty, the French economist, Marxist, basically, um, he says same thing's happening in Europe. Germany, France, countries even that have somewhat social democratic systems, the, the same things are happening. Young people simply are unable to, to accumulate their own wealth so that the key now is you make your fortunes by the old-fashioned way you inherit it. And in fact, I, I actually recently quoted you. you you've, you've noted that in Australia it's particularly bad the yep. drop-off in young people being able to afford homes. Oh, yeah. I mean, and... and, and and then, of course, there are other effects of that. People don't own homes, therefore their political views change, yep. plus they don't Family have Family formation is a problem. They don't have children. I mean, we're looking at drops in fertility rates. We're just, we look at them and say, you know, you're talking about some countries down to like 1.14 and, you know, which is the replacement rate is about 2.1. Yeah. We're talking about countries being a half to a third of replacement rate. Yeah. and. Countries like Australia, which used to be, I, here's my image of Australia. I went to Perth once, got picked up by, by the driver at the airport, and we were driving along. He said, oh, where do you live? He pointed up the hill and said, I own two houses up there. And I said, that's a great country. That, it's a great country where a guy who's mm -hmm. making his living with a chauffeur service is able to own a house yeah. and live in a nice neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And that's what a social democrat should be looking at. How do we make life look better? And what's happened is those of us who are the old social democrats, Mike Lynn, me, uh, Roy Teixeira, we're, we, we're, we're no longer part of the Democratic Party because they're not really interested in those issues. And the environmental thing is a key element of that because if you want to say it, well, really we should have less children, people should have less space, they shouldn't have cars, and they should, you know, they should live like, like, like the good serfs that they should be. I'll pick that up in a moment because there's just one other thing here that, that I think it, it goes to this heart of the squeezing out of the middle and lower classes. You say that uh, COVID in particular, but other economic policies are killing small business. Yes. So increasingly, it's, it's, it's the big oligarchs, you know, the tech companies, the whatevers. There's two comments out of that. Is that one is that the business sector used to be ballast right. in healthy democracies, uh, like particularly Trump. the small property owning class. Yeah. Now, you know, the businesses that that would still be ballast economically and socially are being squeezed out of out of out of business. Uh, you know, they're disappearing. But the billionaires, they're not in, they're not ballast in our society. Many of them want to tip it upside down. Right. And you've written about this. So I think it's an interesting point. And I think, you know, part of it is, you know, frankly, a lot of them, they're engineers and they just don't understand how societies work. I have a good friend who uh, was the largest developer of, of uh, apartments in Silicon Valley. And he said to me, you know, I've worked with oil companies. I've worked with finance companies. I've worked with all sorts of companies. The group the tech group is the ones who have the least understanding of the impact of what they're doing. They have no, they don't understand how human beings function, how societies function, and they tend to have this belief that there is a technological solution, if you will. Mm. And of course, their value system, and I write about this in the book, 
their value system is, well, I'm smart. I went to Caltech. I went to MIT. Of course, I should be telling people what to do. You know, they, 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 you know, so they, they've been brought up in this, in this system where they feel that they are, you know, in, in a way it's a parallel with in the Middle Ages where it was whoever was the best fighter, whoever could win the most, you know, battles. And now it's the people who gain control over the internet and gain control over finance. And with the concentration, you know, we have to remember there hasn't been really in the last 10 to 15 years a true mega company rising. It's the same group, same five, six companies. And then there are the ones on the side that come and go, you know, and they have different um, uh, trajectories. But but the, the amount of control that a Google, Apple, Microsoft, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, well now it's called Meta, you know, Facebook. Um, these people have a degree. Amazon, obviously, they have a degree of control we've never seen. You know, because yeah. our everyday lives are run by these companies. The amount they know about us too. It's it's unbelievable. And building all the time. And They'll soon be able to predict where you and I are likely to go next. Right. Who we're likely to mix with next, and what sort of meals we like, and you know, well, when what I sort see, of state of mind we're in. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the, those uh, little things that the Amazon has, where you, you know people put it in their houses, and it follows you around. Or what sort of imbecile <laughs> wants Google to know what's in my refrigerator? I really don't want them to know. Yeah, and and that's a scary thing with the young people now don't really have the value of privacy because they've been brought up in a world where everything is shared. And I sometimes I'll talk to my own kids and I'll say, hey, you know what? Keep that to yourself. You don't have to share that with the rest of the world. You can share it with your friends. You can share it with us. You know, I'm, I am so reluctant to give out any personal information because, you know, that could be used against me. And, and you know, it's frankly, it's none of your business. That, that, that was... And, you know, and as an American, I'm very proud of, you know, our traditions and, you know, don't tread on me. And and part of don't tread on me is what is private to me is mine. It's not yours. It's not yours to analyze. It's not yours to take advantage of. Now, Joel, um, to come to the whole issue of how we're handling climate, um, if I can nip right back to the mid 70s, I'm a young Australian fresh out of school. And I find myself sitting in lectures being given by an American, very high quality teaching, I've got to say. I've no idea where his politics would have lain. Isn't that an incredible thing? Yeah. I, do, I wouldn't know. Wouldn't have known then, still couldn't guess now. Anyway, it was an admirable American. One day he said to the class, do you know what lifeboat ethics are? Lifeboat ethics? None of us had any idea. Anyway, in essence, to cut to the chase, it was the view of emerging cutting edge uh, greens environmentalists of the day, that the greatest challenge to Mother Earth was that there are too many of us. Right. And That's we would population have to, bomb. We'd have to cut our numbers and someone would have to make some very hard decisions about who stayed in the boat and who was thrown overboard. And he said, who do you think, what do you think it'd be worse? One of the ones to be thrown overboard or one of the ones who made the decision to throw someone else out? And obviously you're a monster if you're going to make those sort of decisions. Why do I refer to that all that time ago? I think we can see this emerging again with the absolute single-minded, we've offended Mother Earth. We humans are the enemy of the Earth. Uh, without mercy, you know, we must sacrifice ourselves. It somehow never seems to mean the biggest agitators for climate change as they fly around in their jets. Somebody else is going to, there's too many of us. Aren't we seeing a return oh, of a God. sophisticated version of life but ethics? Oh, yeah. Look, what you have is a, uh, first of all, this has been there for a long time. You know, when, if you go into the history of the environmental movement, very early on, it was the Rockefellers, it was um, the Ford Foundation, it was the the, um, the people who owned Fiat, the Agnelli family, the, the, the um, uh, the limits to growth. I mean, basically, this has come from the from the high level. And look, I I've had quotes from 
members of the royal family, mem members of uh, uh, you know Jacques Cousteau, basically saying, "Oh, wouldn't it be great if we had some sort of virus that killed half the population of the world?" I mean, they literally say things like that, or you know, the idea that people shouldn't aspire to own a house and have a, a backyard. I mean, the whole idea is so anti-human. Now, my feeling is, if you want to deal with climate change and you want to have it work in the long run, you got to do it in ways that people can deal with it over time. You don't cut their electricity. You you know, if you have to use nuclear power, you use nuclear power. You you know, you don't you push things like remote work so that people don't have to commute. That's something that people like, and you can and 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 you you can uh, have real results. But the problem is that it's not just an idea of how do we save the planet, how do we reduce emissions. California, we we did a little study on this. With all our policies, we've chased out so much industry and so many people. Yeah. Then when those people move to Arizona or to Texas, their footprint is much bigger than it was here because. One thing is, you know, this is it's been hot the last few days, but generally speaking, we have a very mild climate and we tend to have relatively low usage. So, for instance, if my wife and our family moved to Houston, our carbon footprint would double right away because we'd have to run the air conditioner for six months of the year. We probably would live in a more distant location. Uh, and and the the problem is that 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 the what we what what it's become is virtue signaling. It's yeah. you know it's not hey you know what it's better for Australia to produce cleaner fossil fuel energy than have it done in China, but we don't make that because our goal is to prove that Australia reduced its emissions by X percent. Aren't we great? Well, it's global warming. It's not. Australian warming, you know, if we could take care of the, 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 the climate change by what we did in our individual countries, that would be a different thing. But it clearly, China is now emitting more GHG than the EU and the US put together. And, and here's, because, I'm glad you say that, because where's the critical thinking, including, I have to say, amongst young people, you teach them, I made the point to a bunch of uh, young people in Australia the other day that they're probably on board with the green thinking in Australia. We should stop our extractive industries. Right. Well, while ever China's building 170 new coal-fired power stations and Indonesia 56 and India 45 and Vietnam 11, they're trying to lift people out of poverty. That's right. not a bad goal in itself. Same thing in Africa. Africa. South Africa you. in particular. You're going to be better off exporting Australian energy well, you know, not all of our coal is cleaner, but most of it is, than coal that's going to be used out of Indonesia or China. And it was a novel thought to these young people. I hadn't thought of it like that. Well, because, you know, they've been, they've been, they've been taught that, it, you know, and of course they'll, they'll make the point, well, the Western societies created the, all the carbon and all that. Okay. First of all, climate change was happening before the carbon. Now, it may, may have made it worse, which, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I, I can accept that that may be a factor. But, you know, um, climate has been a formative uh, thing way before we had cars. Um, you know, if you read uh, Carl Harper's great book, The, 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 um, the Fate of, of Rome, he talks about Rome almost as if when there was the warm period, Rome did great. When it got cold, yeah. it began to decline. These things have been happening. There's the Little Ice Age. There's a lot of you know, other things going on. People don't have the whole picture, and they, and they, they have the, therefore they have a very simplistic idea. Like, everything was ideal until this. Well, there were things happening before. You know, there was this thing we had here in this country called the Dust Bowl. Yeah, in the 30s. In the 30s. Temperatures were hotter. It was drier. We had we had a drought here in California in the 19th century, which was so bad that they were considering abandoning the city of Los Angeles because really? there was no water left. There was a drought in Australia in the 12th century that went for 37 years. Really? Yes. See? Scientists tell us. Now, I don't want to sound like a climate skeptic, a change skeptic, because I'm not. It is changing. I'm a farmer. I'm at the interface, uh, you know, of business, right. my livelihood 
or my family's livelihood, uh, and climate. So it's important. But it's the way in which you're not allowed to debate the way forward in the things that we've just said. Another classic example is that I think the international accounting system's wrong. So Mr. Olaf, um, you know, in Sweden, thinks that because Volvos are no longer made there, Sweden is doing better. Its numbers look better because Volvos are not being made there. They're made in China and then taken back to Sweden. Right. But Sweden's getting a lopsided accounting number, as I understand, out of it because it wasn't made there. Still consumed there. But that's that's also, I mean, what we have here in California is we've chased out industry, but we still buy the stuff. Yeah. I mean... So consumption rather than production. Right. Right. But, but you see... The, might be a better way of measuring it. But I think the, 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 the definitely a better way of measuring it. But, but the problem is that you have... Um, in a place like California, you know, you you what you do is you chase out industry. This is what may happen to Australia. It certainly happened in the UK. They're trying to turn around now. But once you begin to destroy your industrial base, which includes natural resource industries and even agriculture, then there's no lobby for those interests anymore. That's what's happened in California. Outside of the tech industry, there's the public employees. And the tech industry, nothing, nobody else has any any influence anymore, because you've, mm. you know, you've taken a, a state of California which 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 had a huge industrial base, and you've essentially gutted it to the point that it's a fraction of what it was, and therefore there's no. I mean, you're a, you're a politician or a former Hicks. politician, re- recovering politician, <laughs> <laughs> a but survivor, a survivor. That's right, or. You've been through the twelve-step program, <laughs> but 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 the reality is that 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 what you have is you don't have the lobbies like here in California. Agriculture just doesn't have the power it used to have, yeah. and then you start getting things which I think as a farmer, like first of all, on the question of how you deal with climate change, the main thing is you have to adapt. You have to. How do you best adapt? I don't want to hear. Oh, there's going to be this huge. Um, surge in the sea level, which, you know, so far has not happened, but let's say it, it happened. Well, then prepare for it. You know, if, if you're going to have to change the crops because the climate's gotten warmer, maybe you plant something different. What we're doing now, I mean, with this the, part of this extremism, you'll, you'll, being a farmer, you'd be interested in this, you know, the whole war on nitrates. Yeah. And then the attempts of the, in, in the Netherlands, in part fun, financed by Bill Gates, to wipe out the the the, Dane, the um, Dutch uh, agriculture industry, you know the you know one of the most efficient industries in the world is in in the Netherlands. The Netherlands are particularly gifted in that area. You you know you wipe that out. Now what? Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is a great example. Mm. If, if if yes, you can get rid of nitrates, but you're going to have to then we're, we're, we're you know you're going to lose. Half of your productivity. Half of the globe's grain production is dependent upon that. At this stage, we don't right. have the alternative technologies. It's worth just recapping. Everybody's focused on electricity, which right. we'll come back to in a moment in California. It's a pretty interesting scenario you're facing. But electricity, but you've got electricity, you've got um, uh, ammonia, which is fertilizer and critical to feeding people right. today's technologies. Uh, and you've got cement and you've got steel. Just one way of looking at it. Now, actually, cement and steel production will have to go up in pursuit of the nirvana in the short term anyway. Right. If you're going to build all these wind farms and what have you. So there's a bunch of really difficult issues in there. And you talk about their need to adapt. I'm constantly hearing in Australia as though, it's like as you said, it's a pronouncement, the science is settled, or this is what the science says. But policy is being formulated on the basis that the surveys show that Australians, 50% of Australians think we produce between 10 and 20% of the world's emissions. Tiny little Australia. Oh, in fact, in net terms, it's 1.1 now. It's coming down. Well, it's like California. We're, you know, if California went into the ocean tomorrow, it would have no effect. I mean, Ch- China's increase in the month is bigger than what California does. And the point I want to draw out of that is that as a farmer, regardless of how I feel about climate change, 
I know I will have to adapt if I'm going to continue producing food for people right. because our chief scientist has told us that nothing Australia does will make any significant difference. But that is not the mindset. That is not penetrated. So people are thinking with the left side of the brain, the emotive side of the brain, if I can put it that way, not the rational side, which leads me, if I can, to California. Um, you yourself have called the Democrats' party's uh, green energy policy here a man-made disaster uh, and, and in your own home state. You're going to ban gas and petrol-powered vehicles altogether by 2035. Is that sale or ban? You're, you're going to, by 2035, you won't be able to. But before that, what's going to be really interesting is before that, they're starting to say, like, it's got to be 30% EVs within like two, three years. Well, you're talking about 5% now. So exactly how are you going to get 30% EVs in, in, in this market? Um, the, the, you know, the bottom line is what you're going to do is I think the long-term uh, policy is EVs will be an elite thing that will go back to the 20s when only wealthy people drove cars and the rest of us will either work at home, use uh, ride-hailing services, take the bus. That will be all alternatives. That the days where, you know, a working class guy in East L.A. could have a car I think that's that. That's what they want to get rid of. I, now, I personally believe that if you come to California in 2040, I won't be around. But let's say if you go to California in 2040, you may, it may be like Cuba with a lot of old cars that have been maintained for years and years and years. I mean, that's what that's the other thing is what's going to happen is that people are going to buy cars, pri, you know, prior to 2035, and they're going to hold on to them because particularly, uh, I would say, the Japanese cars and the Korean cars, they, they're going to last for 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and let's tease this out a little bit more. Uh, you're getting warnings now, texts coming up on your phone saying, please reduce your right. power usage, electricity. You switch to a, uh, 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 an EV fleet, the higher the numbers go, right. the more electricity you need. And where's that going to come from? Well, the problem... Or is it your point? People are going to stop driving. Well, I think that that's what they really want to happen for lots of reasons. They've been trying to get rid of the they car, being? the clarity. Yeah, you know the, you know a lot of the academic media, you know, nonprofit think tank people. So this is a bit like 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 lifeboat ethics. They don't actually want to tell you what they really think. Oh no. The great thing about the British Greens is they they actually say what they what they think, like you know the guy at the uh, uh, at the Guardian saying, "Oh, I really hope there's a bad recession that will reduce um, uh, the emissions." I, another crazy Brit wrote something about, "Well, the war is really good because it will slow the world economy." I mean, you sit there and you say, "What are you? What planet did you come from?" What, were you ever brought up by your parents? Did they ever teach you any values, you know, that you're not supposed to, you know, purposely hurt people? Um, I mean, I was brought up from, uh, you know, a family that, you know, my father was the first one to go to college. And, you know, we, we uh, you know, my mother grew up in, in the slums of Brooklyn. I mean, as she said, a crappy neighborhood then, a crappy neighborhood now. Um, and I was, the, the values I was brought up is, I don't think about, when I think about, let's say, climate, how do I address climate change in a way that doesn't hurt people, that makes it possible for, for life to go on in a decent way? And there's, you know, do we want to invest in those technologies that might allow us to do that? But that's not the, the, the goal of the environmental movement. The, the goal of the environmental movement is, is basically, I think, to immiserate the vast majority of people. I mean, it's they they would never think that they wouldn't they wouldn't say it consciously, but that's what their policies are doing, and they simply don't care. A friend of mine, uh, Jennifer Hernandez, who's an attorney, sued the state of California on behalf of two hundred civil rights leaders here, um, and uh, Jennifer went to uh, bis, you know bis, with Becerra, who's now HHS, the health secretary, which is God a bizarre choice, but anyway. Uh, and she said, well, don't you think this is hurting the ability, for instance, of Latinos to buy houses? Because you have mm -hmm. the policies where it's very hard to develop and, and 
you know, then you're requiring this, this, and this. And he said, well, climate change is more important. So, you know, literally yeah. the the fate of the working class and the middle class in America is much less important to the environmentalists than some sort of virtue signaling. And what's funny about it is the biggest reductions in GHG in this country have come from states that are actually fairly conservative and are, uh, uh, in many cases, energy producers. But they've gone from coal to natural gas. The biggest reductions in, in GHG are coal to natural gas. Yeah. And but and and to give President Obama credit, he, you know, he never went against natural gas. Mm. You know, Steve Coonan, who was uh, you know his advisor on energy, he also said, you know, you want to have natural gas replace coal as much as you can. You can do it. You can make. You could replace gasoline with natural gas. Yes, you could. And it and might be better than electric cars. It it would get you where you wanted to go faster. That and and the, but, you know what what's happened is you know and this is my sort of cynical left wing uh, way of looking at the world a little bit, which is when I when I said, well, look, think about all the interests that are now lined up on Wall Street in particular on green energy. It's the great opportunity for them. You can replace an entire part of the economy with a part that's not very efficient. It's very expensive, but you know you're guaranteed profits. Yeah, at the expense of taxpayers, right? Because of the subsidies, a lot of it's rent seeking. Yeah, unbelievable amounts of rents. I mean, basically, I was talking to an attorney who works on these cases. He says, right now, if you invest in green energy, you're pretty well guaranteed about a seven percent return per year, no matter what. One of the most staggering things that I've seen, uh, Joel, in my own country is, and I suspect it's happening internationally is that in my days in government, any significant policy development, even quite minor ones really, which would have had financial impacts, would have been modelled to death before by Treasury and finance right. departments before they came along. Well, you were in the cabinet, so you know how that works. It doesn't seem to be happening anymore at all. Ideology is pipping clear yes. thinking. Yeah, I think that's... I, I, I think of the policies like, you know, I'll, I'll give Jason Furman again, who, who was the president advisor, advisor of President Obama. He, he said this bill that they just passed and, and then the, the uh, huge um, college loan bailout. He said, you, you're throwing gasoline on the fire. Yeah. You're going to bring billions of dollars up without any pro production without, yep. you know, so you're, you're, you're going to raise the prices of, yep. of, of everything. And, and you're not forgiving debt. You're simply transferring it to someone else. Right. Well, you, you know, to yeah. This is coming from somebody, I'm not a climate change skeptic. I'm a farmer. I actually think, um, apart from anything else, fossil fuels in the end are finite. We do need to pursue technologies. We do need to pursue alternatives. But the point is this, if we do it in ways that weaken and permanently damage our economies unfairly hit the poor or the less well off, reduce food production. What we're going to end up with is a massive transfer of power and influence and capacity to you know, shape the world away from the Western democracies. Well, you know, I, I, I Europe comes to mind at the moment. I mean, I always use this term uh, when I talk about energy policy in China. You know, if you remember Muhammad Ali, he had this idea of the rope a dope you know yeah. let you know let you know george foreman or, or or joe frazier spend all this energy he's dancing around and he, when it when when they're tired he goes and attacks them yeah. this is exactly what china is doing they're they're allowing they're, they're sitting there watching us systematically destroy our economy destroy our education system and you know the way we're going in in 30 years Europe and California will be, and Australia will be places where wealthy Chinese and Indians go to vacate. You know, that's what, the, you know, we will have essentially no real role in the world economy. I look at the UK as a danger for US and I think also for Australia. What makes Australia and the US stronger than the UK is the amount of land, the natural resources that they can feed themselves. Um, I mean, look, if the whole world uh, trade economy ended tomorrow, 
Australia and the United States would be two countries that would come out best. Is it, yeah, well, as long as we were still free to run our own affairs. Right, right. But, but, I, but, I'm, yeah. but I'm, all of that taken, yeah. All right. but, but now what we're doing is we're surrendering that yeah. and we're allowing another country to, uh, you know, in particular, to essentially take control of the world economy. And, you know, frankly, I don't think Wall Street gives a damn as long as they make money. I really, you know, the the biggest defenders of China right now are the tech companies and, and the uh, and Wall Street. It's very sobering. Now, in the face of these enormous challenges, to come back to something we were talking about earlier, I worry that we, one way or another, are discouraging our our, our children, the ones we ought to be really committed to helping on the way. Yes. And you're on the front line uh, of um, educating people here at this university, so you've actually been writing about it a bit. Um, You've recently documented an alarming trend of millennials, or those born between 1980 and 2000, effectively dropping out of of social and civic life, um, men in particular. Can you give us a feel for what you're, what you're seeing and what you think might be driving it? Well, I think some of it is this sense of hopelessness, which is partially the climate change. You know, you, I think globally it's like half of young people think the world is not going to be here in 10 years. I mean, you don't teach people history. You, this is not what the scientists are saying. Of, of course not. Even the gloomiest scientist predictors are not saying we're going to starve. You know, they're saying it's going to be rougher, it's going to be wilder, it might be harder to handle. They're not saying it's going to come to an end. That's the politicians and the media. Right. And and uh, and, the, and the tech billionaires. Right. Uh, well, you know, because it's it's good for them. You know, so, so I mean, I think what's happened is we, we also have not taught the kids um, the values of Western civilization. Um, you know, um, I was talking to a, a student the other day and she said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a class on Shakespeare, but it's Shakespeare and race. And I said, well, don't you think you ought, first of all, you're talking about somebody who never met a Jew, never met a black person probably in his entire life. England at that time was, uh, as the Germans would say, Judenfrei. Uh, you know, the, the, the um, Shakespeare has got so much more to say than to focus on that issue. Yeah. And particularly because many of these students have never really studied Shakespeare. No. But we now have a situation where there are major universities where you can get a degree in English without having studied Shakespeare. The guy invented the language. I mean, basically, how we, I don't understand how you do it. You know, it's just like when I was a student in, uh, in Latin, you know, bizarrely enough. Um, if you didn't reach Virgil, you, you couldn't possibly think that you, you knew Latin because Virgil was the leading poet of the of of the roman period so what we're doing is we're taking from our kids all the joy and all the accomplishments yes there were horrible things that happened but you know what for every jefferson davis you you've got a frederick Douglass. you know you've got you know there's a lot to be very proud of in this country you know when people say well there's a hopelessly racist country i said you know what Six hundred thousand americans died over the issue of slavery basically and you've had a black president elected twice. Right. Um, and, 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 and African Americans are a very prominent part of the society. In the- a, can I put a really, and this is not meant to sound offensive at all, but it's, it's a genuine question. Is there a country that a black person would have more opportunity in, in the world today than in America? Well, it all depends. You know, I suppose if you were very well educated, African-American and you moved to Norway, you know, probably, you know, they'd be so happy to have you that it it might do well. But for the average African-American, I think the African-American economy is is about the size of sub-Saharan Africa. The the, the Hispanic population in the in, in, in the United States is by far the wealthiest population. The African population in the United States is by far the wealthiest population. And by the way, Africans, you know, have done pretty well in, in, in some cases in the UK as well. You know, there are, you know, so I, I think that, that what, what we forget is, yes, there have been disadvantages, but there's, there's, we've made such enormous trans, 
transformation. You know, but Black Lives Matter never seems to obsess about some of the terrible things that are happening in places like Nigeria. Oh, yeah. Where many blacks live in daily fear of their lives as a proportion of the population. It's tragically high, the number of people who, who are not safe. Right, well, but you see, let alone that have, have no economic opportunities. I mean, and that's why I think that you know part of what we need to do is we need to say, hey, look, yes, this country's had a lot of bad things that have happened over time. Well, you know, you had the experience with with the Aborigines. We had the experience with the Native Americans. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly and slavery. There are terrible things, but think about what this country is like now. Like, you know, I I said to my my girls, I I said, you know, my kids. You know, I'm old enough to remember when I went to Virginia with my parents in 1960 that there were colored-only hotels. I remember asking my yeah. father, I said, what, what is that? Because, you know, we didn't have that in New York. And to, when my kids said, no, that couldn't have been, I said, you, you don't understand. You didn't see black people on TV. You didn't see, you know, I mean, the, you know, some of the sports didn't really uh, integrate until the 50s. I mean, so, but think about where we are now. I said, if a time traveler from 1960 came to the United States today, they would be astounded by the diversity, not just relative to African-Americans, but Hispanics, Middle Eastern, uh, Asian of all different kinds. This is a vastly different country and it's got enormous potential. So I want to at least make some positive statements. You know, I'm, I'm working on a story right now for the, the City Journal in New York about about restaurants that did well um, out, out of COVID and came out of it. Every single one is either Asian or Hispanic, you know, and the, and, and then you, you see what they're doing with their food, where they're bringing in influences from Mexico and, and, and combining them with influences from the Middle East. I mean, they're just fantastic possibilities. And a society like Canada, Australia, United States, the UK, you know, to some extent, New Zealand, have this capacity to create a new kind of culture. And, but isn't that the point? That we're decrying the institutions of our freedoms, partly because so many people in them have behaved so badly that we don't trust them anymore, but the democracies have been the systems that have been able to say, even at horrific costs like the Civil War, this is not right, we've got to correct this. And if we're going to give up on democracies being the best way to evolve change when something's unfair, what are we going to resort to? Because none of the autocratic or the feudal sort of societies that you've been writing about ever work out very well for those who are at the bottom of the path. And look, where do immigrants want to go? I mean, it, it, yeah. they're, they're all going, they're, they're going to, you know, they're going to France, they're going to England, they're going to Australia, they're going to the United States, they're going to Canada, you know, because those are our free societies. And I sometimes find that my immigrant friends are much more aware of the value of this society than the second, third, fourth generation. Yes. You know. That's I mean, certainly true in Australia. Yes, yes. They're I, often the people who'll say quietly when you get into a cab and the driver, you know, has been from Eastern Europe or something, they'll just quietly say, I'm really uncomfortable about something. I can see where that's drifting. Why can't Australians see it? And particularly if you're coming from Eastern Europe, you're coming from, yeah. uh, you know, some repressive environment and you, and you start seeing the government starting to censor speech or, or, or you know, that, that, you know, like during the lockdowns where you couldn't do anything. I mean, one of the, the things that I think we, we, we need to understand is that there is a resentment to all this, against all this control. It just doesn't have really a voice. Yeah. I mean, it's, you, and unfortunately, the only voice that gets associated with that dissent is Trump. That's why, that's why Biden is desperate to paint the entire opposition to his policies with Trump, because Trump is the best thing the Democrats have going for them. Yeah, but at what cost? I mean, the attacks on the Americans who have vented, let's put it this way, as I see it, Trump may have been a divisive figure in some ways, but he was more the product of division. I agree totally. So he no should one, never have gotten that far. Biden, the President Biden, it seems to me, if I can be so bold as an outsider, has talked a bit about reunifying the country, but he's just launched, as we said here, the most extraordinary attack. 
And this has been... He says it's only the MAGA Republicans, but then the the speech goes on to make it plain. It's basically all Republicans. Well, that's a huge slab of your fellow Americans. And the greatest irony here is the Democrats have been funding extreme MAGA candidates against moderate Republicans. That's just... Well, I shouldn't (laughs) say it's blanket. It's corrupt, but it looks pretty... That's pretty cynical. It's very, I mean, their hope is we'll run against these lunatic Trumpistas and we'll beat them. Now, we, what will end up is we'll end up with at least a few of those lunatics in the, in the Congress. Just what we need is another group of lunatics. Back to the disengagement by young people. Um, this sort of dropping out. This is the age of disengagement. Yes, definitely. Uh, my listeners will have heard me say this before, but Lord Sumption on one of these conversations commented that in the 50s and 60s in Britain, the Labor Party and the Conservatives between them had more grassroots members, had around 3 million grassroots members. Today, the Royal Society of Birdwatchers in Britain has more members than the political parties can buy. Really? That's and in the countries where voting's not compulsory, huge numbers just never turn out, and particularly young people hardly ever bother. Well, not hardly, but many of them don't even register. No, look, it's, it's... Are they giving up, seriously giving up on our culture? Yeah, I th- I, well, I think they're, they're just disengaged. I mean, there are a lot of factors, like everything. There's many factors. Yeah. Certainly one of them is social media. You know, they're, they're, they're diverted into, you know, in, in, into this fake world. And I'll tell you, I'm working right now. We're doing a big conference here on the metaverse. Um, and you ain't seen nothing yet. If you think video games and social media are bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. What's coming is infinitely more immersive. Now, there may be some very good things that the metaverse can do, but the metaverse is basically virtual reality. The inventor of the technology was right from here in Orange County um, and um, then was bought by by Facebook. And I, I was on the phone with the guy who was doing their economics. They're talking about trillions of dollars. And basically what it is, is you put on, uh, now, at least now, you put on a headset and it's like a video game, but it's much more immersive and completely engaging. And, you know, the, well, the potential for whatever sort of fantasy you have is pretty overwhelming. And so the idea would be long-term, you're gonna have a population which spends an enormous amount of its time online. I mean, and, and it's inexorable because the, 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 the oligarchic companies have an interest in having you spend more and more of your time online because they make you know that's how they make their fortune so the metaverse i think is going to be the big game changer it's going to be where we're going to where we're headed where we're going to see that you know where people spend the vast majority of their time online and it's because right now even video games are not quite that immersive i mean they are to some extent um I think you're talking about going in and essentially creating your own reality. Like you don't have to have kids. You can have a kid in the metaverse. Well, we know uh, that um, big, heavy usage of pornography can desensitize people and take them out of the capacity to relate to others properly. Right. What does this have the potential to do in terms of... Just to intensify, intensify that and make it more... Uh, alluring, um, and so you can have the, all the adrenaline rush, the dopamine uh, impact, and so forth of intimate relationships with not another human in sight. Right, but except artificial humans. Well, yeah, and then obviously down the road, like what what we're looking at here um, is that eventually more and more things will be done by robots. I mean, I, I, you know, you can see what the future that's being laid out in front of us is gonna be like. And the, one of the very few advantages of being an old guy is that uh, um, I won't be here to see most of it. That's a pretty sad thing to say if you're trying to fire up your students. Well, you know, I, 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 I hope that, I think, I, I, I have more hope for them. I think in that, I think that, 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 if they're presented with a different way of thinking. And, you know, I always tell them, I don't care what your politics are. I'm going to grade you on how well you write and how you back up your arguments. That's all I care about. 
but think about the different the, the the different sides of things. Think about you know that if you do A, it's going to cause B, and then maybe you should still do A, but you ought to know that there are going to be these negatives, like you know this idea that you you you're going to move let's say to electrical vehicles and everything will be great. Well, that's you know there's going to be a lot of pain along the way, that and basically you know particular people will feel it more than others but but there but i i i still believe that ultimately young people are not stupid they're not i mean i find my the kids i teach they're actually they're smart they're technologically you know much better than me <laughs> um they 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 know how to they 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 really i think there is this interest i i think the z's the next generation will be better than the millennials. And I think the millennials will become more conservative over time as they start thinking about buying a house or, and look, that's what's happening. When we look at who's leaving California, it's young middle-class families, that's, who, that's who's leaving. Because you can't buy a house here. I mean, how do you buy a house in a, in a, in a state where if you, on the coastal counties, you're talking about Minimal seven eight hundred thousand dollars U.S. for a very modest home in an area where, if you have children, you're probably going to send them to private school. So you don't move to Texas for the weather. You don't move to Texas for the food. You don't move, to, although there is some good food there, but you don't move to Texas for for the topography. I mean, there's no question. California is infinitely nicer than Texas. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I mean, there's just no way. I couldn't possibly comment. Well, but but I can. So, but in Texas, there's up still there's opportunity, and in Texas, there's some idea of at least some protection of your basic rights. Now, the problem that Texas has is it has a far right that has its own agenda, which isn't so great. But for people when they're moving. If I can move to a nice suburb of Dallas and buy a house for four hundred fifty thousand instead of eight hundred thousand, and I'm in an area where I can send my kids to the public school, it's a kind of a no-brainer, you know. And what you do is you you know in the middle of the summer you go and spend a month in California. Final question: You come from what you would call a pragmatic center. Any thoughts on what might bring this? country back together, given that it's divided from top to bottom at the moment, and that threatens its coherence, and therefore, frankly, the liberal global order that it's overseen well, one of my, since the end of the Second World War. One of my biggest disappointments with President Biden has been that he didn't do that, as you pointed out, and he's chosen to become extraordinarily divisive. You know, he the, the whole Green New Deal, like, what are you doing? You know, why are you threatening so many people's lives why are you obviously there was not a lot of uh, significant analysis of the fiscal impacts i think that there are politicians uh, in both parties who conceivably can make could make a difference i i'm thinking particularly of yunkin in in virginia uh hogan um, in in maryland i mean there are several of these politicians who are out there and have been very successful. It's just that the national media and the national um, uh, you know, political establishment has been pushing things on the extreme. Like, you know what, I'm, if I see a, a Republican who's willing to impeach Trump for January 6th, I'm much more likely to vote for that Republican than a Republican who's gonna back a guy who clearly does, I mean, my sense with Trump is he's not a not a fascist. You know, he doesn't have enough coherency in his worldview to be a fascist. He, you know, he didn't govern as a fascist. Um, but um, but I think what we are having is a kind of fascism, but almost a sort of melding of feudalism and fascism. But it's coming more from the left than the right. But there is an element in the right that is scary. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, what bothers me is. Liberals don't see the threat from the established government side, and the conservatives don't see the threat from, you know, some from their far right. They, you know, they just, you. How do you take January sixth and dismiss it? 
you know, it, it was a very serious issue, you know, talking about, you know, hanging the vice president. That's pretty bad. You know, I'm sorry. And there's no, there's no really excuse there. But I do think people maybe after, after the, the horrible, uh, secession of Trump and then Biden, maybe we'll find something different. You know, um, we've, we've managed out of those situations before, you know, we, um, we've very often, even when the country has been very divided, um, eventually we do find ways of, of coping with it. Um, and, um, you know, the, the basic constitutional structure is still very good. Um, and, I think people want stuff that works. And then the question is, how do we communicate that? How do we get it? Like right now, the problem is, like someone like me, I end up writing mostly for conservative publications because the liberal publications aren't going to listen to what I'm saying because it doesn't follow the party line. You know, the sort of Stalinization of, particularly the, of the liberal media is pretty astounding. I mean, and and that's why you have people like Bill Maher, you know, who are saying, "Hey, look, you know, right now the the progressives are the most boring, intolerant, unfunny group of people out there." They're certainly unfunny. You know, you're look, seeing that in Britain. All yeah. Britain's always been known, particularly in Australia, where we understand British humour, for their, their comedians. They're, 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 they're genuinely funny people right. setting themselves up. <laughs> Some of them are literally leaving Britain. They're saying there's no room for humor anymore. Well, the same thing in this country. You know, try to try to watch a Woody Allen movie or a Mel Brooks movie or Richard Pryor movie. Those movies, you can't, you know, they're they're going to have things in them that that uh, you know Dave Chappelle. You know, there's lots of these guys out there, and you can't you can't say this, you can't say that. Well, humor is all about making fun. You know, I mean. And and you you can't do that anymore. And could you imagine Blazing Saddles being made today? I don't think so. And it, you know, Blazing Saddles actually, you know, Mel Brooks is very liberal, and and the point of view is very liberal, but it's funny, you know. And 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 he makes fun of things that that are that uh, you know that involve race. The 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 humorlessness is just it's so terrible. And what was the last time there was a really good comedy? Yeah, well, uh, that's right. I mean, it's matched only by the mercilessness of the judgments if you accidentally sent off a tripwire. Yeah, and, there's and, no forgiveness. And I don't know how any culture works. You know, the smallest culture, a family, right through to a nation works if you can't forgive and forget. Well, and I think that's also part of the problem. And, and sometimes they dredge up something that somebody tweeted 10 years ago or some, you know, or had a posting that was, you know, and look, I mean, young people do stupid things. I don't think there's any of us older people who didn't do something stupid when we were young, something that we're sorry we did, or something we said that we're, we wouldn't say today. So we're going to say, hey, you know, I'm going to, uh, because I said something about, you know, gay people 20 years ago, I'm a horrible person and therefore can't be you know, uh, can't even be allowed in the public square. That's the kind of world we're headed towards. It's the kind of world that it's up to us, you know, to try to stop. Well, you make a magnificent contribution. I recommend your writings to anybody who hasn't come across them. Really yeah. appreciate your time. Well, You've been very kind. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.net.